So let me record it for those 10. We have literally tens of people, I think, don't we, Karen? Literally tens of people. As most of you know, I love to quote C.S. Lewis now and then. He's a well-known 20th century author and um, Christian apologist. An apologist is someone who defends a proposition or defends a cause. I love how Lewis replies to those who ridicule us Christians for believing the Bible, for believing that it is the Word of God and for building our lives upon it. You know those guys who scoff at us because we love His Word and those guys that think we're simpletons because we believe it. Um, Lewis, this is Lewis's comment to them. It's perfect in my view. He says, The answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. Don't you love that? I think it's perfect. For the critic, for the biblical critic, for those who scoff at Christians, call us simpletons and unsophisticated and Neanderthals. I'm going to read it to you again. The answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. Backhandedly, of course, Lewis is saying that the, the, the Bible-believing Christian is the ultimate intellectual. So I looked up the word intellect or intellectual in the dictionary, and it says showing sound judgment, rationality, and discernment. Sounds like the born-again mind to me. It goes on to say showing mental capacity well beyond the ordinary. Yeah, I'd say that our mental capacity is well beyond the ordinary. I'd say it's supernatural. We are God-tutored. Amen? We are God-tutored. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, teaches us. I would say that our mental capacity is well beyond the ordinary. A regenerate mind comprehending and believing truth is light years beyond an unregenerate mind believing a lie. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's great to have a big IQ. But if all of your presuppositions are wrong, guess what? You get the wrong answer. It doesn't matter how many digits are in your IQ. It doesn't matter if you start from the wrong place. And of course, this is what C.S. Lewis is saying. Lewis is right. It is a book for grown-ups. Not, grown not that we shouldn't teach our children. Obviously, we should and we do. In this church, we teach, the cho we teach our children the Bible. But the Bible is for grown-ups in the sense that it forthrightly deals with ultimate questions. The question of God. Does He exist? Does He exist? Who is He? What is He like? How can I know Him? The question of origins. How did I get here? Am I a cosmic fluke? Am I a grown-up germ? Or is there something going on here that's more important? How about life's purpose? Why do we exist? Is it all about me? Is that how I'm to live my life? Like it's all about me or is it about someone else? The ultimate question of sin and evil, how did we get in this mess? This moral and existential mess that the world is in. The ultimate question of salvation, can we get out of this mess? this moral and existential mess that we're in. The question of guilt. Why do I have a conscience and why does it always condemn me? 
How about death? Why is there death? And what comes after death? How about judgment? Is my conscience right? Am I accountable to some higher authority? Lastly, heaven and hell. Are they real? Do they exist? And what are they like? These are some of the many ultimate questions that God answers in His Word. The unregenerate mind either ignores, dismisses, or settles for some superficially convenient answer to these questions. I'm always amazed when I engage people in conversations how few people actually think deeply about these things at all. It's as if, you know, the whole world is entertaining itself to death. Entertaining itself with superficialities on its way to hell. God describes this phenomenon perfectly in Romans 1, 21-22. You guys will will know this, the unregenerate mind. He says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. It doesn't matter how big your IQ is. If your speculations are futile and your foolish heart is darkened, you can profess to be wise, but God says, You are a fool. This is the Word of God. I don't care how big the IQ is. If our speculations are futile, that that meaning, namely, if they contradict the Word of God, if they're in disagreement with the Word of God, what good are they? The regenerate mind shows sound judgment, rationality, and discernment. It shows mental capacity well beyond the ordinary. It seeks out grown-up answers to grown-up questions. Therefore, The regenerate mind loves this. The regenerate mind loves the Word of God. That's why we preach the Word of God. I don't tell you what men say. I tell you what God says. That's what we do at the International Church of Milan. And if you're born again, if you're regenerate, you understand that. You want to know what God says. You not only want to know it, you love it. And you want to live by it. You want to bring Him glory and honor through uh, your obedience to the Word of God. Lewis is right. Bible believers are not simpletons. To the contrary, we get it. We get that everything was created by Jesus and for Jesus. We get it. We understand that. We understand it's not about us. We get that. What a liberating thing, right? It's not about me. That's quite liberating. And, you know... I've said this to you before, you, you kind of get to, after you've lived a few years, you get to the end of yourself pretty fast. You just don't find yourself very fascinating. But Jesus is infinitely interesting. It's about Him. It's about Him. And we, as Bible believers, understand that. So the Bible is a book for grown-ups who've come to the blatantly obvious and utterly exhilarating conclusion that I'm here for Jesus. I'm here for the glory of Christ. That's what my life means. That's really ultimately, principally, primarily what it's about. It's about how I relate to Him 
and what I allow Him to do through me. That's your life. If you don't understand that that's your life as a Christian, you've not yet understood Christianity. You've bought into some kind of cartoon uh, characterization of Christianity. We get it. We get it and we love it. So as I've said to you, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe 50 times through this series. Um, we can't live small anymore. If it's really about Jesus, right? If it's about us, it doesn't matter how we live. Really, it doesn't matter. We can spend our life on uh, trivial things. We, we, can, we can waste our whole life on nothing. But if we really believe that we're created and redeemed by Jesus, there's an accountability there. There's a stewardship there. There's something He's left us here to do. I tell you all the time, it's better in heaven. It would be better if He just took us. But He doesn't take us because there's something for us to do, beloved. There's something for us to do. We can't live small anymore. We know the answers to the ultimate questions. We know we have to live like grown-ups. We know we want to do grown-up things. We don't just want to live, make some money, buy some stuff, do some things and die. That's too small. That's too small for the regenerate heart. That's too small for the born-again mind. We have to do First Peter. <laughs> we have to do it. Yeah, it sounds scary. It sounds costly. It sounds dangerous sometimes. But we have to do it. We've seen Christ. We can't live small anymore. We need to go with Jesus. God has opened our minds. Amen? Wherefore I was blind, but someone tell me, now I see by the work of God in my life, I see. I see what's important. I may not have the biggest IQ in town, but I know what matters. I know what should matter. The born-again Christian knows God has given a supernatural judgment, rationality, and discernment. 2 Corinthians 4.18 We look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Colossians 3.2 God has taught us to set our minds on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. This is real intelligence. <laughs> Beloved, this is real intelligence. Of course, you guys know 1 Corinthians 13, 11, where Paul says, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child, but when I became a man, I did away with all this childish stuff. This is what it means to have a regenerate mind. This is what it means to be born again. I can't do these little things anymore. I can't give myself to bubbles that burst. I must go with Christ. And I think this is one question that First Peter helps every professing Christian to answer. Have I really stopped talking, thinking, and reasoning like a child? I'm going to put it to you. Have you really stopped thinking like the world? Which to me is synonymous to thinking like a child. Have you really stopped? 
Have you put away your childish thoughts about your life, about the world at large, and about what it really means to follow Christ? Have you dispensed with those childish thoughts? Have you really grown up as a Christian? <coughs> do you have the desire in your heart to do First Peter? Although, it sounds hard. <laughs> it really does. It sounds hard. Do you have an appetite? Or have you bought into some cartoon version of Christianity and some caricature of Jesus Christ as millions have? So as we close 1 Peter, I'm going to do what I did last week. I'm going to quickly go through the list of, of all that Peter says about suffering for the cause of Jesus. Because I don't want you to ever forget that this is a component of who you are if you claim to be a follower of Jesus. In 1 Peter, God has told us that our trials are necessary. Chapter 1, verse 6. God has told us that our faith will be tested by fire. Chapter 1, verse 7. God has told us that sometimes we will suffer unjustly. Chapter 2, verse 19. God has told us that sometimes we will do what is right and we will suffer for it. Chapter 2, verse 20. God has told us that we have in fact been called for this purpose to follow Jesus Christ in suffering. Chapter 2. Verse 21, God has told us that if we suffer for the sake of righteousness, we are blessed. Chapter 3, verse 14, God has told us that we will be slandered and reviled for the sake of the Gospel. Chapter 3, verse 16, God has told us that since Jesus suffered in the flesh, we should arm ourselves with that very same purpose. Chapter 4, verse 1, God has told us that we are not to be surprised at the fiery ordeal among us as though some strange thing were happening to us. Chapter 4, verse 12. God has told us that to the degree that we share the sufferings of Jesus, we're to keep on rejoicing in it. Chapter 4, verse 13. God has told us that if we are reviled for the name of Jesus, we are blessed. Chapter 4, verse 14. And lastly, God has told us that when we suffer according to the will of God, we are to entrust our souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. Chapter 4, verse 19. So as we complete 1 Peter tonight, God reminds us how grown-up Christians are supposed to live, how we're supposed to think, how we're supposed to act, how we're supposed to believe, particularly in the face of trial and tribulation and persecution. And I want you to try to listen. We're going to talk about at least eight characteristics. I'm going to just, they're, they're embedded in the message, but you'll, you'll hear at least eight characteristics of a grown up Christian as, as Peter closes this great epistle. So you can be listening for that. In verse 5. Chapter 5, verse 5 of 1 Peter. You young men, likewise, be sub subject to the elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to 
the humble. Submission is something that God has repeatedly talked to us about in this book. This is the first characteristic of a true believer. A submissive spirit. You may remember uh, chapter 2, verse 13, Christians are to be submissive to every human institution. You may remember chapter 2, verse 18, Christians are, be t- are to be submissive to all those in authority over them. Chapter 3, verse 1, Christians, Christian wives are to be submissive to their husbands. And here, Peter says, young men who we all know, young men sometimes can be quite full of themselves. Peter turns to the young men and he says, submit to your elders. Submit to, yes, those who are senior in age to you, but there's another meaning here. Submit to the leadership of the church. This is something that's commanded several times in the New Testament. The New Testament speaks about this a couple of different places. I'll just read it to you from Hebrews 13. God says, remember those who led you who spoke the Word of God to you, imitate their faith, obey your leaders, and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Then God says, clothe yourselves with humility. I looked up the Greek word here, translated clothe. The connotation is, it's the the scarf or the apron or the overalls or the, or, or the garb of a first century slave. They wore who they were. They, they put it on. They clothed themselves in the humility of slavery. It's as if you know, God is using this, this in a very powerful, in my view, metaphorical way. The Christian is to put on their humility. The Christian is to wear their humility. Our humility is our work apparel. (laughs) Before we go out into the world, we're to clothe ourselves in humility. And of course we're to clothe ourselves in humility as the text says. One One to another. So this is the second characteristic. The grown up Christian is to be is to be humble. God has a lot to say about humility. I, I, I looked into the, uh, the New American Standard and, and, and found out how many times the English word humble or its variations appeared. It's a 104 times in Scripture. God talks a lot about humility. I don't have time to fully develop that. But you guys know that humility was no more popular in the first century than it is in the, in the, in the 21st century. It's seen as weak. It is seen as cowardly. You go to your local bookstore, you're not going to find a self-help book on humility. You're not going to hear a lot about humility uh, when the valedictorian gives the graduation speech. And you're not going to see very much about humility in the media. It just doesn't sell. Men don't like humility. God loves it, but men hate it. I saw a great quote from John Piper on this. Let me read it to you. Piper says, the basic reason for the absence of humility in the culture is not hard to understand. Humility, listen to this, humility can only survive in the presence of God. He's right on the money. If you don't have any humility, (laughs) you probably haven't met the Lord. I'm not saying that we all have arrived in a perfect place. We all have miles to go. I certainly do. It's a progressive thing. The Piper goes on to say, when God goes, humility goes. And then he says this, in fact, you might say that humility follows God like a shadow. I love that, beloved. 
God calls us over and over and over in the Bible to be humble. So why does God oppose the proud? You saw it here in the text. Why does God oppose the proud? Can you think why? What's the closest place in Scripture that the Bible tells us the origin of sin? What's the closest the Bible ever comes to identifying the origin of sin? You remember? Satan's, Ezekiel 28.17, Satan's heart being filled up because of his perfection, because of his beauty. Then in Isaiah 14, we see Satan's arrogance in saying, I will make myself like God. That's the closest the Bible comes to identifying the origin of sin in the cosmos. It's pride. It's pride. Sin, rebellion, death, judgment, and hell flowed out of the pride of Satan and it is continuing to flow out of the pride of men. God hates pride. God hates it. Every evil thing flows out of pride. You know, sin is simply a declaration of independence uh, from God. And how arrogant and proud is that for a creature made of dust to declare his independence from the eternal God. God hates pride. C.S. Lewis says, it is the basic sin of all other sins. And then he says, at this very moment, you're doing it. And I'm, I'm doing it. Or we're about to do it. Or we're repenting of it. Amen? There's a lot of pride in all of us, I know. The key for the Christian is, as he discovers it in his life, he's repenting of it. He's laying it down. He's saying, oh Lord, deliver me from this scourge of pride. It's, one of, it's the first thing of the seven things God says He hates in Proverbs 6. Many of you are familiar with that famous passage. He hates haughty eyes. He hates it. One, one translation says he hates a proud look. One of the paraphrases said he hates arrogant eyes. The literal translation is that God hates high eyes. Eyes that look down on everyone else. Not only does God hate a proud look, we see it here in the text, He is opposed to the proud altogether. Beloved, do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel the weight of that infinite, eternal, omnipotent, sovereign God is opposed to those who are proud? It's the converse of Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, from this text we understand if God is against us, who can be for us? Really? Who can be for us? Many struggle in this life looking for some solution to their problems. In fact, for many, the problem is pride. And if you're filled with pride, God says, my hand is against you. You can't find any deliverance until you deal with your pride. God opposes the proud. Beloved, I know the world sings a different song. God is opposed to proud. And of course, the sobering reality here is God doesn't simply oppose the proud for a day or for a season or for a lifetime or for a millennium. He opposes the proud forever in His wrath 
in hell. But did you notice the good news? God gives grace to the humble. <laughs> True humility is a sign of God's presence in the believer's life. It's a sign of God's transforming grace in the believer's life. Fallen men do not come to humility natural. It is God taught. <laughs> if you've got an ounce of humility in you, God taught you that. And because He loves you, He's going to continue to teach you how to be humble. He's going to continue to teach you humility. Why? Because He loves you. I love Micah 6.8. Many of you know this great text. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This is how grown-up Christians live. Verses 6 and 7, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. There are at least two important truths that I want you to, to grab on here and try to understand if we're really going to, to, to equip ourselves to actually live out this great message from 1 Peter. First, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is a colorful way of saying He is sovereign. This is a colorful way of saying, I will rest in the sovereignty of God. That's the third characteristic of a grown-up Christian. He rests in the sovereignty of God. The biblically literate Christian understands that nothing happens in our lives, in the world, indeed, in the 400 plus billion galaxy cosmos apart from the mighty hand of God. What does sovereignty mean? It's a, passage, it's a word that we use often in this church that God reigns with absolute and uncontested power and authority in every aspect of creation and life from the subatomic particle to the supernova on the other side of the galaxy, God is sovereign. God is sovereign in all things. You remember how Jesus said it to the first century hearer. He didn't know about subatomic particles and He didn't know about supernovas, but Jesus said, not a sparrow will fall to the ground apart from the will of My Father. I mean, there's nothing more insignificant than a sparrow. He said two are sold for a cent. This is Jesus' way of saying, there's nothing that escapes the sovereignty of my God and my Father. Beloved, Christians are supposed to know this. And we're supposed to appropriate this. We can be fearless. We can do First Peter because He's a sovereign God. Because everything falls under the mighty hand of our God. We may die being His witness, but that was His purpose. And God's going to use that martyrdom. You know, if we've done any study of the Bible at all, we understand that, that uh, sometimes God delivers us by the sword and sometimes we perish by the sword. We are still God's. And God is still doing what God purposes to do. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. I love to say it this way. There's not one rogue molecule in the cosmos. Every molecule obeys I am. If you believe that, you are free to do First Peter. You're not really going to worry too much about what men can do. 
Because they can't do anything to you apart from the will of God. And if God has willed it, as He did in Stephen's life and many others throughout the New Testament and many others throughout the history of the church, if God has willed it for you, He will meet you there and He will satisfy you. Whatever the the persecution is, God will satisfy you in that moment. You know, the problem is modern Christians don't believe this, it seems to me, anymore. But this is one of the things that Peter's saying to us as he signs off. He says, humble yourself under the hard circumstance. It's from God. He's doing a good thing. Romans 8.28 is always true. It's true today. It's true tomorrow. It'll be true forever. God is doing a good thing. He is sovereign. He is a sovereign God. And this is what Peter is reminding us. On the hard day, the Christian doesn't panic. He doesn't whine. He doesn't complain. He doesn't kick against the goads. He humbles himself under the mighty hand of God. And as we've talked about many times, if the trial is here, can someone finish that for me? If the trial is here, God is here. It's always a, it's always a, a God encounter, right? God always comes to His people in the trial. The second thing I want to point out here in verse 7, we cast all our anxiety upon Him. This will be the fourth characteristic. We trust the Lord. In the moment of anxiety, in, in, when, when, you know, in the, the heat of battle, when the rubber hits the road, we trust the Lord. We cast our anxiety upon Him. We don't hold on to it. We don't wallow in it. We throw it onto God. I, I love the Greek imagery here. It's like throwing a blanket on a horse. It's like, you know, just cast it on God. Throw, throw your anxiety on, on the horse and let the horse leave. Just throw it on God. Let me ask you, is that a reality in your life or do you indulge your own anxiety? You know, that's a function of pride, I'll say to you. Give it to God. God commands it! You call yourself a Christian? Give your anxiety to God. When it comes, give it to God. It comes to all of us. Give it to God. Don't entertain it. Give it to God. Are you practicing that discipline, beloved? God has commanded you to. And I've got to say this. You guys have been around for a while. You know, through First Peter, I've become enamored with this. And I'm just going to say it to you one more time. I just have to do it. It's, if it's not for you, it's for me, Okay? <laughs> the grown-up Christian knows that persecutions and trials come into our lives not because we are not loved, but because we are. If you've understood anything about 1 Peter, you understand the trials not because God doesn't love you. It's because He does. It's not because we've been forgotten. It's because we are ever-present in the mind of God. It's not because we are forsaken. It's because we are chosen. It's not because we are neglected. It's because we are elected. It's not because we are abandoned, but because we are adopted. This is the message of 1 Peter. This is why you can do 1 Peter. Because all of that is true. The text says He cares for you. I believe it. If you believe it, you'll live it. You know? Even as Job believed it on his hardest day, we believe God can be trusted. That's my fifth characteristic. We, we hope in God. The grown-up Christian hopes in God. 
Not in some, oh, I wish it would happen. We hope with certainty. We know He is a promise keeper. He is an invincible promise keeper. And He will exalt us at the proper time, as the text says. The other thing I want to say to you before we close First Peter, I know I've said it to you many times, is we've gone through this great, this great epistle. But you remember what Paul says. These are momentary light afflictions. They can only last a lifetime. These are momentary light afflictions producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The regenerate mind, the born-again mind, has weighted out. Eternity matters more. You don't have to be a rocket scientist, right? You just have to be born again. Eternity matters more than everything temporally. Infinitely more. It's the regenerate mind. The true believer's waited out. He's waited out. Verses eight and nine. Be of sober spirit, but uh, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in. The world. God says, be sober, meaning be clear minded, disciplined, temperate, careful. This is the sixth characteristic of, of a grown up Christian. We are sober minded. God says, be alert, watchful, attentive, aware, vigilant. This is the seventh characteristic. We are alert in the spiritual realm. Why? Because God says, that's how my people live. And then God says, you have an enemy. And we understand this. If we understand our Bibles, we know that we have an enemy. Satan is real, he is powerful, he is dangerous, and he hates us. He hates us. But guess what? The thing you always have to remember is that he is no more than a dog on God's leash. He is no more than a dog on God's leash. In 30 years of ministry, I've seen two principal errors regarding Satan. First error are those who discount him. The Bible clearly says here, God says to us, be on the alert and resist him. We are not to discount him. He is a powerful adversary. The other mistake is that I see some focus on Satan. You never see this in the Bible. Satan is never the focus. He's always a bit player in the narrative, but he is never the focus. If you've ever studied Job, uh, who, as you know, Satan attacked mercilessly, Job never mentions Satan at all. He looks right past Satan. And he looks at God. And he says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not add Versity. Beloved, you must always remember what God is doing in the trial as opposed to what Satan is seeking to do in the trial. In the trial, God is seeking to establish your faith. We've seen it all the way through 1 Peter. He's going to test and purify and establish the faith of His people. He's going to bring you into conformity with Jesus. The thing Satan is trying to do, he's trying to overthrow your faith. 
That's what he's always trying to do. That's what he was trying to do with Peter when he asked for Peter if he could sift him. He wanted to overthrow the faith of Peter. But you remember what Jesus told Peter. It's one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. And you remember what he told him? Jesus says, I prayed for you. Jesus says, I have prayed for you. There's a ton of theology here. I don't have time to develop. But think deeply about this. He dismissed Judas and he prayed for Peter. It's a ton of theology. I don't have time to deal with it. James tells us over in James 4, 7, Submit therefore to God. Here's, here's how you deal with the devil. Submit therefore to God and resist Him. Anybody remember what will happen if we do that? Satan will flee from you, is what the text says. This is how we deal with Satan. We are not to seek to engage him or speak to him. And nowhere in the Bible do we see men seeking to bind him. I know you hear this kind of talk. No, you can't find that in the Bible. There's only one being who can bind Satan, and that is God Himself. Verse 9 so God says, resist Satan, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. In other words, this is a universal experience for all Christians. You're not alone. You're not alone. Satan is coming after each one of us. But we will get the victory. You know what Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 6? He said, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. How? You guys remember putting on the armor of God. I won't go through all of it. But how do we do it? With the truth, with righteousness, with faith, and with our sword, which is the Word of God. Verse 10, and after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God says after you've suffered for a little while, it's My will that you suffer for a little while for the glory of Jesus, for the, for the conversion of the lost. Your testimony will bring men to Christ. We've seen it all the way through the history of the church. After you've suffered for a little while, God says, I will exalt you. I will perfect and establish you. Don't you love it that Peter says, God will do it. God will do it. You know, there are millions who call themselves Christians. They're not sure if they're going to make it. They don't have a biblical soteriology. They don't understand how God saves a man. I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. I'll make it. God will make sure I'll make it. That's what you learn if you actually read the Bible. God will make sure through the trials, the hardships, the persecutions, and the tears, and Satan's attacks, God will bring His people to glory. Why? Verse 11, To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen! Jesus said it nine times in the Gospel of John, I will never lose one of My people. You don't have to be afraid. <laughs> You're firmly in the grasp of the triune God. And you can do First Peter because He is who He is, beloved. He is who He is. 
He is the invincible, unassailable, unstoppable, dominating God. And I don't have time to develop this, but you guys, you know the great text, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. He said, he, Isaiah says it perfectly. God says through the prophet, For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there's no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning, I, uh, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. No one can stop Him. He will bring His people to glory. Perfectly. Perfectly. So we understand from 1 Peter, Christians will suffer merely because we're Christians. God says it will happen. If you don't believe that, you've, you've not, your Christianity is not biblical. You've not been taught properly. You've not, been, you've, not studied the, you've not studied the Bible for yourself. This is the clear message of the Bible. And Peter tells us we're not supposed to be surprised. I know you know this one. We're supposed to be ready. Be ready. We're not surprised when it comes. We're ready to stand and give a witness, right? We give a blessing, <laughs> even in the face of persecution. And we give a, a witness. Look at Peter's last exhortation. This is the eighth characteristic of a true believer. Look what he says. He says, he says I have written in this book the true grace of God. He says, then what does he say? What is it, what's the command there? Somebody, someone tell me from the Word. What does he say? Stand firm in it. Christians, stand firm to the end. We persevere to the end. We stand firm in all that God has done in our behalf. And I've got to do this one more time and I'm done. You guys that were here early on in this series, you know I got hung up on this and I just got to where I... I yeah, I probably put it into too many sermons, but I've got to do it one more time because I love it. We can do 1 Peter because the first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1 are true. And I'm just going to give you the summary. God says, I have chosen you. Verse 1. God says, I have redeemed you with my blood. Verse 2. God says, I have sanctified you with my spirit. Verse 2. God says, I have caused you to be born again. Verse 2. 3. God says, I have prepared an imperishable inheritance for you. Verse 4. God says, I am protecting you with my omnipotent power. Verse 5. God says, I am perfecting your faith in this trial. Verse 6 and 7. And God says, I am saving your soul. Verse 8 and verse 9. Beloved, you can do 1 Peter. And I'm going to challenge you, do 1 Peter. And never look back. Don't ever look back. Don't play it safe. Don't live for small things. Listen, my challenge, give yourself to God. Maybe tonight like you never have before. Give yourself anew and afresh to God. I bet there's some area in your life that's a stronghold and you need to get past it. Give it to God. Give it to God. Beloved, we can live First Peter. Because our God is sovereign. Peter says, stand firm in who God is. Stand firm in what God's done. Stand firm in God's promise. Beloved, I challenge you, stand firm as a Christian. Be fearless in the world. Obey the Lord with glad, reckless joy. Let's pray.
What an awesome God You are, Lord. You've done everything that's necessary. All we have to do is act. All we have to do is really believe. All we have to do is hold on to who you are and what you've said and what you've promised. Father, thank you for calling us to yourself. I am in awe that you have called me into relationship with yourself. I am in awe that I can know I am. I am in awe that I can love I am and serve I am and glorify I am. Thank you, Father, that you have called us to yourself. Thank You, Father, that You have purchased us. Thank You, Father, that You have sanctified us. Thank You, Father, that You have caused us to be born again. Thank You, Father, that You are protecting us with Your omnipotent power. Thank You, Father, that You're in the midst of our trials and You're doing a good thing. Thank You, Father, that You will bring us to glory. Thank You, Father. It is Your work. There's nothing for us to boast about. You've done it. It's all grace. It's all free, sovereign grace. And we praise You, great God. A billion eternities is not enough to praise You for how You have loved us and how You have saved us. All praise, glory, and honor to the matchless name of Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Hey, can we sing uh, Sovereign Ruler again? Okay. Let's...